everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. We have our second annual Halloween episode that I'm so excited that Q called and was like, hey, are we going to do our Halloween episode? Thank you, Q. So glad to have you back. Always. It's a pleasure. Last year was a blast and I hope we get to repeat it. Yeah. So last year, you guys, uh, for Halloween, we did a haunted hospital. And so this year I was like, I don't know how we're going to top that. I'm not sure how to, you know, what to come up with that would be different. And uh, I started thinking about the characters that, that, you know, like the monsters associated with Halloween. And I thought about Frankenstein. And, you know, the story of Frankenstein is about a, what's about a doctor, right? That kind of was a mad scientist and he created life and then didn't like what he had done, realized, you know, he had made a mistake. And so I thought, I wonder if there's a real doctor that, you know, maybe did that. Maybe we could do something like that. And then lo and behold, the author of of this literary classic, Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. Mary Shelley, she got her inspiration from a real life physician who was sort of doing, you know, I don't know, I won't tell, I won't give everything away, but she got her inspiration uh, from a real life person. So I thought, ooh, let's do that. This is exciting. It is exciting. Listen, we all dress up for Halloween. Everyone knows Frankenstein, and the fact that we're doing this, it's education to me. This is education. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a bad doctor. It's a Halloween special. If this ain't the mm-hmm. episode for you, I don't know what is. I don't know. What I know is. it's got classic literature. Yes, I'm going to have to confess this though. But I haven't read that book. Because I feel like I know the story. Everybody knows the story. So it doesn't excite me, the thought of reading the book, really. <laughs> I hear you, girl. There's a lot I of stuff. I feel kind of bad. Like no, I feel like I need to go back and read it. But Stop I it. did sort of <laughs> I did sort of get a synopsis of it though. And we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna t- kind of tell that little story af- at the end when we talk about our our doctor. We'll uh, okay. we'll tell a little synopsis of the Frankenstein novel. So Frankenstein, of course, is one of the most well-known Halloween monsters. And it is about a physician, a mad scientist trying to create life and then broke all sorts of laws, both legally and morally. (laughs) And then after he had done it, after, yeah, after he did it, then he was horrified about what he had done. It didn't occur to him to stop and think about the consequences before. People The book's got a lot of deep meaning. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, people are wild. Well, hello, I you know look at the podcasts that we do, the people that we talk about. Yeah, people are <laughs> capable of. Yeah, people are capable of absolutely anything, and I literally was researching another story that I'm going to be doing next week, yesterday, and I still I sat there and gasped when I found the story out loud, and my son was sitting there beside me, and I kind of like paused for a second because he was like, mom, what's wrong? And I was like, and I said, it's just one of these stories that I'm researching. And I swear, I don't understand how I'm, I'm shocked anymore. I really don't. And yet people never cease to shock me. It's because the reason you're shocked and the reason I'm happy that you're shocked is because you're a good human being. Okay. If you stop getting shocked at some of these insane craziness, I'm happy you're shocked because I, I am and always I, I, I always am shocked because these people, these crazy, psychotic, bad doctors and bad nurses find mm-hmm. the most insane ways to kill. Most of the times it's people they love. And then sometimes it's situations like this where they're the most vulnerable people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's true. So Mary Shelley did get her inspiration for writing her book from a real life scientist and how she got that inspiration I thought was kind of neat because the book her book was written in the what early 18th century I guess what around 1821 I think something like the 1820 so she when she was a little girl she would sit behind her father's chair when he would have all these kind of important people uh, over and they would be sitting there talking about world events yeah events of the day and you could just see little mary shelley kind of crouched hiding behind her father's <laughs> chair listening to their conversations i thought that was i don't i don't know what do you think about that <laughs> i love it look listen listen I, I, She's a writer. So this is what she's born to do, right? She's just so sitting there soaking in all this information. I love mm-hmm. that. I It's back in the 1730s, 80s, 90s, whenever this was, whenever she was a little girl, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
um, I know the history of women's rights in the world and in this country. So I'm guessing that they weren't like, Shelly, come sit on my lap and talk about it, current mm-hmm. events. So the fact that she was sneaky about it, the fact that she understood it, contained it, um, and let it sink in is respect to Shelly and thank you for giving the world Frankenstein. Yes, no, no doubt about that. Wow, has she influenced all of society with that book? It's exactly. crazy. It's just, it's like a lot. And, it, and there, it's not like it was the only Gothic novel of the time, but there was also some romance in it. And it was, it was, there was a lot of sort of underlying, you know, themes to sort of uh, teach us lessons, and which is all good literature does that, right? It's right, sort of, yes. it's it captures your attention and you enjoy reading it, but it teaches you a lesson at the same time. It's what makes it literature. But can I just say so, this? I'm sorry. Before, mm-hmm. before we get to talk about the actual doctor, I, I have to say, I haven't read the book myself. So I don't know the details of the actual book, but I do know that the, mm-hmm. the movie that they made from the book, they make Frankenstein the bad guy for killing the doctor after he brings Frankenstein alive. But in real life, what we're about to learn about this doctor, this real-life doctor that was trying to make a Frankenstein, and he's Mm -hmm. not the good guy. He's not the person you feel bad for. Frankenstein doesn't come alive and kill him. He's the dude killing and harming and doing horrible things. So if Shelley wrote that into the book, I'm happy she gave us Frankenstein, but she definitely twisted the truth a little more than I would like. So whenever I tell you the real story, I think you're going to like it. Oh, good. I do. Hit me. Yeah. When we get to the end of, after we talk about this, uh, the doctor and we, and we actually kind of do a little synopsis of the book, I think you're going to like it. I really do. Cause when I read it, I liked it. I kind of like the, the summary of like, you know, what's this about? I was like, I like this. This is really good. Uh, I think you're going to like it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk some more about it here in just a minute. Our doctor, though, uh, that Miss Mary Shelley overheard her father talking about uh, was actually Giovanni Aldini. And he was an Italian physician. And she overheard her father talking about him doing experiments. And he was actually the nephew of another physicist and and physician, Galvani. And Galvani... um, actually sort of started that whole thing, experimenting on, uh, well, you know what, guys, I really, I, I, I promised that I would try to tell you this before. So before I say this, if you don't like hearing about animal, you know, things going on with animals and, um, and children, yeah, there's some, I mean, it's a Halloween special and it is back in the day, but still it's gruesome, some of this stuff and, and sat, really sad, you know, some of the stuff that people did. But so I just wanted to say that, you know, there is a little animal s- stuff in here that, that went on and people, of course, and children. So just to warn you about that, getting back to our our doctor that we were talking about. So uh, Galvani, the uncle of, of the doctor that we're actually, actually talking about, Galvani did experiments on animals to prove that there was electricity in animals. And um, it's actually where we get the term to galvanize. So if you if you say, you know, you want to galvanize, say, for example, a group of political, you know, people in a political group, you want to electrify them and get them all excited and get them motivated to do something. That's where that comes from, to galvanize. I thought that was kind of interesting. I like stuff like that. So that is the uncle, yeah. uh, Aldini, Dr. Aldini. He sort of built on the concepts that his uncle started. Okay, his uncle's dealing with animals, electricity. Aldini went a little further with it, experimenting with the idea of preserving human life and material objects from being destroyed by fire. In 1803, so right at the turn of the century, there's a man, his name was George Forster. He was a a criminal. He had been executed. He was hanged for murder. I'm not sure his whole story but somehow, I guess, people seem to be able to justify doing things when they think someone did something wrong. <laughs> Do you understand this, Q? I don't. We, I really don't. Before this podcast started, before we started recording, I asked Tina if she would go watch this dude get hanged if, they were, if it was happening in like mm-hmm. the town hall. And she said no. And I'm telling her, I would go. I would go see this. Listen, I understand that people don't like 
Now, if obviously, and it's the death penalty like today in 2020, the death penalty. If you don't believe in the death penalty, I can understand why you'd be upset. But if you know for a fact that this dude, Mr. George Forster, actually committed a murder or did something and you believe in the death penalty, you can't say you can't you can't say you wouldn't want. I mean, you could say you wish he would die and not want to see it. I'm saying if you believe in the death penalty and you know for a fact he did something wrong and he's going to get hanged and there's an option to watch it. Listen, the truth is I would go. I, I just I know I would go. I know I would go. Kind of up to say, but it's probably the truth. It's probably the truth. But he got hung, hanged, hanged is the word, yep. Hold on, I have to make another note because someone used the F word again. Um, <laughs> hold on a second. I'm making my notes so I know where to go edit. Q, I swear, this is a PG-13 or PG whatever. <laughs> yes, I'm so sorry, I forget, I forget. <laughs> it's okay, I'm kidding. Um, so... Yeah, well, I know. It's just it's just that I don't believe in the death penalty and I don't believe in using people who have made mistakes to the point that they're incarcerated. And I know this person cuz he was hanged and then it was after he was hanged that he was taken over to the Royal Colleges of Surgeons to be experimented on. So it's not like they were using him to experiment on him when he was alive, although I know that that happened. So I just feel like we, even if someone did something deplorable and they're, they really are just the worst human being, they're absolutely evil and they did horrible things to someone and, and aren't, even a, aren't even sorry. Like the worst possible human being you can think of, I don't want to stoop to their level. That's all, that's my thing. I just don't, I don't want to stoop to their level. So yes. that's, I don't know. And I know people disagree with that and that's okay. I 100% believe in giving people the right to their own opinion about things like that. Because if you insist that everybody agree with you, you're going to end up with a very small circle of people that only think like you. And I don't want that. I want I want to be around people that, yeah, I want to be able to have conversations with people about these things and disagree and still be 100% okay with that. Like we can disagree with it and that's okay. You right, because like right now, Tina and I disagree. I'm right, she's wrong, but we're still friends, right? We're still friends. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for oh, for heaven's sake, you. So, anyway, so this was something that was very common uh, for them to do at this time, where they would take someone who's been executed and donate, basically donate the body to science. I guess you know, against the person's will, they would take them over and to the Royal Colleges of Surgeon. And not only would they donate the, it, it to them for, for them to kind of practice on and learn from, but they would put it on display. They would do an entire demonstration in front of, like, in front of the public and people could go and watch this. Now, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to be 100% real here. I would go and watch that because <laughs> I could not not watch that. <laughs> Like, I want to see the, like, you know, because whenever I took anatomy and physiology and we we did get to work on cadavers in lab and that was fascinating to me. Now, I'm 100% respectful of those people, but those people aren't there anymore. That's their exactly. bodies. You know, those that's just some, you know, yeah. earthly body that's not, those people aren't there. And they, especially the ones that we were working on, they were, they obviously agreed to it. So it was a learning opportunity. And I was fascinated by just getting to really see what, I don't know, the way everything is connected and it makes it real for me. I am definitely a hands-on person. I want to look at something, touch it, do like if I'm learning something, you can tell me all day long, but just give it to me and let me do it myself. You can tell me how to program a pump but until I actually do it myself, it's just all a bunch of words. I, I need to do it myself, you know? I, I think there's going to be a lot more people that agree with you on that one, including myself. And like, especially for our your audience, the nurses. Nurses is like in healthcare, this is what we do. Like postmortem care is what we do. Organ, uh, what's it called? Being an organ donor is a good thing. At least I believe it. So like 
Yes. After the person's yes. dead, especially if they gave you the right to do it for research and or just organ donation, after the person dies, this is a good thing. That's that's the part yeah. I think most people can agree on. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, good. I, I feel a little better now. <laughs> just saying that. So, um, the thing is though, uh, rather than doing what they normally would do, and that would be a dissection, kind of like, you know, because you sort of dissect the person, the, the thing out, like the, uh, whether it's an arm or uh, the torso and you're looking at organs or whatever. Aldini did electrical experiments on this person. And he did have this very famous public demonstration of electrostimulation technique. And it was reported, this is, oh my gosh, so creepy. So it was reported that the jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver. The adjoined muscles were horribly contorted and one eye was actually open. Yeah. So creepy. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is a Halloween episode. That's crazy <laughs> and scary as shit. Like, mm-hmm. I'd be first one there, first row. The second I see that eye open, I'm gone. I'm gone. So I'm gone, Tina. <laughs> I know There's I would no too. <laughs> I know. I'd be so <laughs> out of there. Especially back <laughs> I then. I would hurt myself trying to get away. <laughs> right? Because back then they believed in witches and like wizards and shit. So like if I saw a dude who's dead open his eye and start moving his jaw, deuces. Just deuces. <laughs> I know. So if, as if that wasn't enough, in the final parts of the experiment, uh, the right hand was raised and clenched in a, into a fist and the legs and thighs were set in motion and... <sighs> It looked like to some spectators, and this is a quotation like that the reporters, as they were, you know, talking to different people that were watching, this was literally a quote uh, that someone said, if it looked as if the wretched man was on the eve of being restored to life. So, yeah. oh my gosh, they literally, it looked <laughs> like he was coming back to life. Can you imagine? It's a little scary. It's very scary. Mm-mm. This nope. is real scary shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. I'm just so out. I can totally see. So this is what little Mary Shelley was hearing sitting on the floor behind her father's chair. She's overhearing this conversation. This is what I'm just like, <gasps> she's six years old and she's listening to this conversation. And you can, she was probably scared to death, you know? Oh my God. Especially at six. This Shelly, Mrs. Shelly, Miss Shelly, Mary, she's a trooper. I'm she's a goddamn trooper. Like real talk. I'm I'm a, I was afraid of the dark. I was I was a little scaredy face, a little scaredy cat. So for her to listen to this and then keep it and write about it, she's a she's she's a superstar. Superstar. Well, it wasn't uncommon for scientists to perform experiments, unfortunately, on animals on prisoners alive and dead and on children. Oh my gosh. And I, you know, I I uh, love Charles Dickens. And so I've read a lot of, of his, well, I've read all of his books actually. And so the little orphans that would like, run, I run around the city um, of London when there were like tons and tons of orphans and they were just mistreated and they were used to like go up chim- like by chimney sweeps to go up into the chimney. Like they were just like disposable. It's just the saddest thing in the world. And it absolutely breaks my heart. And to think that, you know, children that I, I love my children so much. I'm like, I, oh gosh, I just, I just worship them. And, but other children, any child, I, I'm just, I don't know. Like, they're just precious. It's right. so hard for me to imagine a society that would allow this, but they would use children who were orphans because they just saw them as being disposable. It just, insane. that broke my heart when I was reading this. It's insane. I mean, like the So in 1730, of, I yeah. know. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, as some of you know, I've done... Uh, I don't know if I've ever talked. Well, yeah, I, I did talk about it one time um, on the show, but um, I was an orphan when I was young. So uh, I would have been one of the little people running up this <laughs> chimney and I would have been the one of the little people like, 
somebody was experimenting on. Dang it. So, <laughs> so in 1730, I know. Tina, thank God. Thank, thank, thank God that you were born when you were, not in 1708 or whatever the hell Mary Shelley was born. I do, thank God. That's insane. I do. That's insane. I do. Yes. Yeah, I would have not been, I would have not fared well had that happened. <laughs> so in, 17, in 1730, there was an English astronomer. His name was Stephen Gray. He demonstrated the principle of electrical conductivity by suspending an orphan, a little orphan boy, on silk cords in midair. And he placed a positively charged tube near the boy's feet, creating a negative charge in them. And then due to that electrical isolation, it created a positive charge in his other extremities that caused a nearby dish of gold leaf, which I don't even understand this, to be attracted to his fingers. I don't know what gold leaf, like, I don't know. Anyway, the gold in that dish was attracted to his fingers because of the positive charge that was coming from his body. Oh my gosh. This sounds like anyway, a lot of disgusting like people, of, uh, but you know that lady, Nurse Ratchet and Cuckoo's Nest? Is that Cuckoo's Nest? One flew over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes. Yes, that's what it sounds yes. like when they were like doing the, like, what do they call it? A lo- not a lobotomy, when they do the shocking things in your head, the electrical stimulation or whatever. But way back in the day when their definition of electrical stimulation was like, use as much <laughs> electricity as humanly possible. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, they still do that today as part of uh, to treat severe depression, and it's actually a quite effective treatment for severe depression if it's done correctly. So uh, it's kind of strange, I know, and may seem almost unbelievable to some people listening to this, but it is true. So Mary Shelley, of course, was inspired by these physicians and scientists. Uh, childhood, throughout her childhood, the, the story that she heard her father talking about stayed in her mind and she would be, she was scared. She was afraid at night and she, it would give her nightmares. So she was actually traveling with Lord Byron. I'm so jealous. And there was, it was like a group of people. They did this all the time back then. Like, I want this life. They would just travel around and they got bored. They were in Switzerland. These people kill me. <laughs> so they got bored because it was raining and they couldn't go outside. And so they, in order to entertain themselves, they decided to have a, a competition to see who could write the scarier horror story. And so Mary Shelley, she's, I get, you know, I imagine her, you know, this very creative, very talented person now is turning on the wheels, you know, inside of her brain, trying to think of really horrific, scary things. And then she goes to sleep and then she woke up having a nightmare about a mad scientist who created a monster and then was terrified of it. So she immediately, I've heard of people like songwriters and other kind of writers, like creative people that do this. Like wake up in the middle of the night with an idea, like a like, um, well, Mark, my husband is a, a songwriter and he's done that before where he's like, oh gosh. And he'll keep sing, singing the uh, the tune over and over again until he gets somewhere where he can record it because he's afraid he's going to forget it. And so that's what I kind of imagine her waking up scared to death and then like trying to get her little quill, <laughs> you know, her feather <laughs> thing <laughs> to write it down. Gosh, it must have been painstaking trying to do that. Like, listen, Tina, this is incredible. I love this. I love when you go back and see what other people had to do to just get the regular, regular stuff into there. Like, just write it down, right? But it is crazy to me. And I, I love the story of how it came about to be. The fact that they were just, like, trying to see who would write the scariest story. But you, you got to make up your mind, Tina. You can't be jealous of Mary because she gets to hang around Lord Byron, but not want to be bored back in the day because you would have had experiments. You got to pick True. a side, boo-boo. You're right. <laughs> I agree. So this, I'm going to say, if I had my choice, maybe I would want to be born at that time, but I would be want to be born to a wealthy family and not go. as an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. If I get to choose. (laughs) Yes. So she writes down the book. She was 18 years old. That's crazy to me. She was 18. 
It's incredible. Is that not insane? It's incredible. Can you imagine doing something at 18 that lasts for centuries? Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when she was 20, I, it was published. Yeah. What? What did you say? I was going to say, when I, when I was 18, I want to forget the shit I did when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that living on for posterity's no. sake. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Maybe other people can learn from you, though, Q, you know. I'd rather not. Learn on your own. <laughs> okay. Don't remind me. Oh, gosh. So when she was 18 uh, was when she started this. And then by the time she was 20, it was published. But she published it anonymously. I wonder why. So um, I wonder if it's because she was a woman and she didn't want, you know, she thought maybe people wouldn't read it because she was a woman. Her mother was a famous feminist, famous. Like she wrote books and was uh, would travel around and she was just extremely radical. She was even radical. Her mother was even radical for today's radical. Like she was out there. And um, I don't know. I just, I, I could imagine um, Mary Shelley just just thinking, well, if I, if I publish this and put it out there and put it, my name on it and it's a female, no one's going to read it. Respect. Or, yeah. or, which I think she's, look, listen, this was just me. Knowing that Mama Dukes does it, did it, right? I, I, for me, in my perspective, I don't think she was afraid that it wouldn't get published because she was a female. I think she just didn't want to live under her mom's shadow. It sounds like her mom was the, the bee's knees, right? Okay, but yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Because like we said earlier, back then, it wasn't the best time to be a female. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, today ain't the best time. But back then was a little worse, you know? It was, it was a little worse. Yeah. So when that when it got really popular, so a, a second edition was published. Her name was on it then. <laughs> she's, uh, yeah. she's like, "Oh, I want to take credit for this. Everybody likes it. Good, you know." And I mean, people loved it. Of course, obviously, people loved it. It was a huge hit. So um, the story of Frankenstein, just to kind of give you guys a sort of a synopsis of it. Robert Walton was an explorer, and in the book, he tells how he met a man by the name of Victor Frankenstein. So Frankenstein was actually not the name of the monster. And that is a very common mistake that a lot of people make. Most people think that the monster's name was Frankenstein. It's actually the name of the scientist who created him. The monster didn't have a name. And that's, mm -hmm. and it's one of the sort of key points at the end of the book, the fact that he didn't have a name. So, This person, this explorer that the book opens with, Robert Walton, he's telling how he met this this man, Victor Frankenstein, when he was in the Arctic after earlier having seen this gigantic figure crossing the ice. So he's kind of telling his version of the story that it's like, okay, this it's kind of a weird setting, but I watched the movie last night, so I get it. But... There's an explorer. He's like crazed and um, so fixated on getting to the North Pole that he's willing to sacrifice the lives of the the men that are with him on his ship. It's extremely dangerous. There hit there there are icebergs everywhere, and his crew um, and his you know second mate or whatever is trying to tell him, you know, what do we need? To, what do, we need to go back. We need to go home. This is not safe. And he's like, no, I'm going to do this. I want my name to live on, you know, forever. And it was worth it to him to sacrifice people's lives and even risk his own to be able to say that he got, he made it to the North Pole uh, just because he wanted his name to live on forever. And so that's kind of how this book opens with this person, this explorer, and and sort of obsessed with the idea of, his name living on and that sort of thing. So Victor, after this explorer meets Victor Frankenstein, Victor starts telling him about his childhood and his family and how wonderful and caring his family was. He had a foster sister, Elizabeth, who when he was little, she was an orphan who came to live with, with them. And so they weren't really sisters, and that's important for later on in the, in the book too. But his mother dies of scarlet fever just before he leaves to study, to go study at, at university as 
you know, this is a European novel. <laughs> so, well, at university, <laughs> it, it seems silly, you guys. There are a lot of people from Europe that listen to this podcast, so they're probably going, why is she making such a big deal out of that? It's because in the U.S., we don't say it that way at all. And so, it feels a little silly saying it, but I'm just, I'm just saying it the way the book says it, okay? So, <laughs> Victor's interest in science becomes an obsession. So... He is obsessed with this, uh, with the idea of using dead bodies to experiment on, and he creates a monster that's made of different body parts, and he tries to find like the best body parts to put together. You know? Yeah. Oh, look, listen. So creepy. Listen, look, uh, all, all the way up until <laughs> here, it sounds it's it sounds intriguing, right? Very, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. I definitely have now. I feel like I have to read this book because obviously mm-hmm. you you're just giving us the synopsis, but I know I'm missing a lot of context, and I'm now I'm like I'm interested. I'm already sold. I can't wait for you to get to the end of this synopsis, but I I'm sold. I get it. I get. I understand why this book was as big of a deal as it was because. I'm in. I'm here. I want to know about this obsession and his stepsister and this dude, this explorer who just came from the North Pole. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. See, just from watching the movie, I know that there are a lot of details that even in my synopsis that are not there. So if you guys want to read this book, it really is. I I am excited and want to read it now after just watching the movie and Yes. Kind of reading about this, it kind of. I, I'm good. I'll probably end up listening to the audiobook because I like audiobooks. But oh, that's, um, a, that's a that's a good way. Yeah, that's a good way to go about it. Yes, it is a good way to go about it. But when Victor creates this um, this thing with all these different body parts, even though he used the best, what he thought was the best parts, and he thought it was going to be like this perfect creature, it wasn't. When he when he finished it, it, he was disgusted by it. <laughs> I know it was. He was so disgusted by it, and he left. He just left. He ran away from it. He created this life and then ran from it. Then his brother William, who he loved very much, and was he was a younger like he was he was a child, is murdered. And then another woman who is sort of um, connected with their family, who's a close family friend, almost like family. She is kind of the nanny, I guess, of William, and she is actually executed for William's Death. murder because they, yeah, they somehow believe that she was to blame for it. Victor, however, felt like, no, it was the monster that I created. I, he just kind of knew that, that, he, that that monster was coming after him to hurt people that he loved. And so then the monster and Victor meet on a glacier mountain and in the Alps. And the monster starts telling him the story. And Victor is really surprised to see that he is able to talk, you know, this creation. And so he tells the story about how he survived and of the time that he spent becoming educated. What he did is he lived in the, he kind of lived in the woods. And there was a family that he would watch from afar and this family was this adorable little family. And there was like a grandfather and then, you know, children. And he would bring them firewood and he would like take care of them, but they didn't know he was taking care of them kind of thing. And it was really sweet. And then at some point it gets ugly because the family kind of sees him. And then he sees himself, his reflection, and he realizes how ugly he is. And he becomes really angry. And it's really bad. And starts killing people? So, yeah. <laughs> okay, look, listen. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tina, mm-hmm. you built it up like... I don't want to give away be, too much. I know, but you built it up like Frankenstein was going to... Well, the monster was going to be this, you know, happy-go-lucky monster and help people out. But after he finds out he's ugly, he decides to kill people? <laughs> I need to read this book. I need to read this book. Yeah, you got to read the book because there's there's more to it than that. You know, it's a little more complicated than that. He didn't kill the family. He didn't kill who in his mind were innocent people. He was trying to get back at his creator. He was mad at his creator for creating him and then abandoning him. He didn't even give him a name and he just left him on his own. And he had all of these emotions and just all of these feelings 
coursing through his veins and he urges like to kill people and he didn't know what to do with it. And he tried to fight against it. He also felt love though. And he wanted someone to love, but he was, because of the way he looked, he would never have anyone to love him. And so because he would never have anyone to love him, he chose to indulge the other feeling of the urge to kill. Okay. So the way that I see that whenever I think of this story and like I said, I just kind of really came, became really familiar with it just in doing this research. But my gosh, it really kind of hit me to my soul because what this tells me is that society really is is responsible for creating our own monsters because we don't love we don't love people. And based on how they look, how, does this not what happens oh. in, in our society? And we create monsters because we don't love them. And they, they're just like, if, I, if no one's gonna love me, then I'm going, there is another side of, of humanity, of everyone that's ugly and dark and willing to hurt people. And maybe even have, maybe some people even have urges to hurt people. And when they don't feel like there's, they're being loved and even being hated, then what do they do? They're gonna... Um. I don't know. This book is just deep no, to me no. when I read it, when I was reading about it. Tina, uh, that's beautiful. But, I mean, how you just described it at the end is kind mm-hmm. of amazing. And uh, like, and the reason I love fiction, because like real life is cool and people do cool shit and people are great, right? Awesome. But the issue is it's real life. So there's a lot mixed into it. This is super simple. You can have a creature that just has two feelings, love and the urge to kill. And then based on what people do around him, you can work that through. Like it's an archetypal story. It's like the core of what we believe when it comes to love and the opposite of love. So yes, this is beautiful. Yes, society creates their own monsters. I believe that through and through. And when you said that, it was like a light bulb that went off in my head. Of course, that's what the story is. Of course, that is. It's literally a doctor that creates someone, runs away, and that creation becomes the worst thing ever because it has nobody. It has no love. It has no people in it. Listen, it makes sense that a book that was written by an 18-year-old 200-plus years ago is still, like, it's a classic. It's a classic for a goddamn reason. And it makes sense. It really does make sense. And I really like the way you wrap that up. That was kind of beautiful. That was kind of beautiful. Thank you. Well, that does wrap up our little story. And of course, we it it that was sort of the bad doctor story. But I uh, I definitely want to end on a on a good note with a good doctor. Always. And Q, I know your politics are <laughs> you know like you're very strong oh. into politics. But yes. here's my thing. I do believe that we can see the good in people and all people. All people have the capability of being good and bad. And and actually, I think this man is a good man. I really do. I think, I know you don't agree with his politics. I think he's a wonderful person, really. And I don't know that I agree with those politics either. But when I look at what all he's done with his life, I am very impressed with him and... I wanted to talk about him. So it's a little difficult just be, with the, you know, politically things are so <laughs> highly charged right now. But this is Ben Carson. And this is, um, he is a neurosurgeon, a pediatric neurosurgeon who has done some amazing things in his life. Yeah. Look, listen, I was telling this uh, when she texted me yesterday saying, is it okay? We could do Ben Carson. I was like, of course, of course. I mean, you just heard Tina and I disagree on the death penalty. Of course, politics talks about things that are intimate in like our day to day, right? I disagree with everything politically. I say everything, but the majority politically of what Ben Carson believes in politically. But I'm a nurse. I don't care if the doctor that's giving me or writing the orders is a Republican, a Democrat. I don't care what the doctor is. As long as I agree with the order that they send, as long as I agree with their care plan, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it like swimwear. And Dr. Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson is an amazing human being. Politician Ben Carson, no efforts. Forget about you. Forget about you. I'm not a fan of the politician, Ben Carson. But yes, it's called good nurse, bad nurse. And we're talking about him as a professional doctor. So I'm in, I'm in it. I'm here. Let's talk about Ben Carson. 
Well, Ben Carson, he's Ben Benjamin Solomon Carson. He was born September 18th, 1959. He's he is a politician now. He's also an author. He's a retired neurosurgeon. He has served as the 17th United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development since 2017. That's what his current role is now. He was appointed by Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Listen, oh my God. Did I say I disagree with the mother, the dude? Of course I disagree with him. He is considered a pioneer in the field of neurosurgery. So at the age of 33, Back in 1984, he became the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Children's Center. That is no small feat, Q. Come on, you have to give the man credit for that. Credit where credit is due. And he let's 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 talk about the elephant. Yes, let's talk about the elephant in the room. The man is an African American, and this was 1984. Yeah. He, he was some fighting some battles, was he uh, not? A hundred percent. Yes. And like he was born in Detroit. Way. He was he was not born to wealth. He was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born to maybe middle class. I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but definitely not born in a, to a wealthy family. So he, yes. he, he had to overcome a lot to get where he is. Think about that. I have to have respect for this man. I just 100%. have to. Yes. He was a candidate for president of the United States in the 2016 Republican primaries. He was a so he used to be a Democrat a long time ago, back in the 80s. He was a Democrat. Then he became an independent. And he was an independent for a long time, and I have to I have to feel like he he had to be trying to figure out you know a balance between the two, which I respect, I do. But then you get to a point where you're like, you know, you kind of have to pick sides because you're never going to get elected as an independent. It's just not going to happen. You're going to you got to be one or the other. Not in America. Not yeah. in America. <laughs> <laughs> no America. So he. <laughs> so he picked Repu the Republican side uh, because it must have aligned uh, more with his sort of like ideals and, you know, his thinking of kind of you can make anything of yourself. I can understand why he would think that because he, look what he's done. Look at what he's accomplished. You know? Yeah. Like, listen, listen, to each their own, I just disagree, which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine. Yes. It doesn't take away... Uh, from his accomplishments, it doesn't take away from who he was as a person. And I, I still think he's just an amazing person. At retirement, he was professor of neurosurgery, oncology, plastic surgery, and pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He So one of the things that really kind of hurled him into the limelight was he successfully, and, and that is, I have to say after researching this, I'm not sure I agree with the successful part, but he is he is credited with successfully separating conjoined twins um, that were conjoined at the head. He, you know, he's a neurosurgeon, so he was able to separate their brains, and then they both both babies were still alive after, and they lived. I don't know if they're still alive or not, but they lived a long time afterwards. There is a little bit of uh, controversy around that, though, because he didn't necessarily... Now, I'm not saying there's controversy around him. He performed the surgery. Uh, the parents consented to the surgery. But I don't know about, quote, how successful it was because before the surgery, they were kind of like happy, giggly babies, you know, kicking and what you would kind of think of as little babies. Uh, and then afterwards, they were not. And there was a lot of swelling and they had brain, a lot, a pretty massive brain damage for the rest of their lives. So, and I just say that because I don't want to be like, I don't, I always want to be upfront. And when I did the research, I did read that. And I, I don't want to pretend like I didn't read it, you know, because <clears throat> I did. And I don't hold that against him. He did, I'm, I know he did the very best he could. And they were alive when he was, when he's finished. And everyone, like his, their parents and everyone knew the risks, yes, of course, um, of it. Well, listen, so. listen. When when you go in, uh, so I, I'm nurse. I work on the tally floor. When you go in to get a like a what's it called uh, a stent put in, part of the consent form says that you might come out brain dead. If you're yeah. gonna separate two conjoined twins at the head, and if they have some mental 
disorder afterwards or some um, uh, abnormality or have some side effects after, I'm not surprised at it at all. And just like I said, I think this dude is an amazing, amazing doctor, right? He's the first one to do it. And they did survive. So on this, I'm on Ben Carson's side, right? Your Whatever your definition of successful, I don't know. But the point of the surgeries was to separate the two of them and get them to be so have both of them alive. That's what happened. Yes, they weren't happy-go-lucky babies. Yes, their life wasn't easier. But that's for those kids and those parents to decide which is better to be conjoined or not conjoined and have some um, brain issues. But he did his job and he did it spectacularly. So I am going to give Ben Carson credit in that specific case, right? He separated conjoined twins at the head and he was the first one to do it. This is some Grey's Anatomy shit. I've only seen this on TV and in movies. This is amazing. This is amazing. The only thing is, I just want you to stay in the hospital. Why did you leave the hospital? Why are you a politician? I don't know, but let me stop. Well, I'm... I have to disagree with you there, Q, because I do believe that more people who are professionals and working, uh, working, just working individuals should maybe take a few years out of their life that if you are capable and I don't know, just if you're successful, if you're a successful person, you take a couple of years, a few years out of your life to go serve, uh, to help run the country. And that's the way, to me, that's the way politicians should be as opposed to having politicians who are career politicians um, living forever um, as a as a politician. I don't like that. I do not like career politicians and I, I'm 100% against it. I think that it's, we should all just be working and then, you know, there are people who go and serve our country uh, to try to make it a better place. And I think that he he has his uh, experience. I don't know that jumping straight into being president was a good idea. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, I mean like, there's just no experience, you know? Like there was no experience like on foreign policy and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I under, I, I'm not saying he was would have been a good president. I'm just saying that I do think that people... I think we need regular people going and serving in Congress, in the Senate, and as president even, rather than these career politicians who, like, that's their whole life and that's all they ever do. And they don't even know what it's like to be a, an ordinary person. And, or, and, they're, and, they're, and yet they're making decisions for people. And they're also financial. Oh, gosh, I turned this into a political thing. I'm sorry. I'm going to shut up now. Stop. Look, first of all, before you shut up, because I love politics. I could talk about this all day. Before we end this, and yes, I... It, I agree with you. You just changed, you helped me change my mind. You're right. Uh, I think him jumping from being a working man, especially in healthcare, to joining politics is actually a pretty good thing. And I agree with you. Career politicians are not ideal, are not ideal. But I think I'm just bitter because he's not on my side. So you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, thank you. Wow. So I changed your mind about that? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying, I, I have agree. To, you realize this is being recorded, so you can't really deny. <laughs> yes, Tina. Yes, you helped me. Uh, you opened my eyes. Yes. Well, Ben Carson has received numerous honors uh, for his work in neurosurgery. Um, he's he's gotten more than sixty honorary doctorate degrees and numerous national merit citations. I wish I could get one of those honorary doctorate degrees that way I don't have to go back to school. <laughs> Can somebody just give me an honorary <laughs> master's degree? <laughs> I don't want to do it. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that would be dope. That would be dope. <laughs> Wait, real talk though. Oh, I don't know if it counts though. I think I think real talk. I think you might get honorary something. Like there's going to be a nursing graduating class. It's like we want Tina to be our like a speaker, <laughs> whatever, right? Commencement speaker. I can Aww. see that happening in a couple of years, boo boo. Like real talk. I really do. I don't know what you're talking about right now, but uh, <laughs> I, I just know I'm going to cut that out of the episode. It's not going to be in. There. I can't, can't handle it. So. um in 2008, he was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States. 
In 2010, he was elected to the National Academy of Medicine. And they also, there was a movie uh, done about his life called Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story. And Ben Carson was played by none other than Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's 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 legit. That's legit. Yeah. So that's Ben Carson, and I um, I have to say I really respect him. He's our good doctor. I think he is a good doctor, and I think he is a good person. And whether or not you agree with his politics, I'm not gonna say it either way, just because I like to I like to stay in the middle of stuff. I don't like getting getting all one way or the other. <laughs> Unlike you, Q, you just jump feet oh, first. Oh, 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 feet? What are you talking about? I go head first, Bill Boo. I'm in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, that wraps it up for another week. Good Nurse, Bad Nurse and our Halloween special. That was just fun. I love it. It was kind of nice. It's it's nice to do stuff that's not quite so heavy, you know, yes, so dark. Yes. Well, you guys can find me at tina at goodnursebetters.com. Send me your emails and your stories uh, that you have for me. And you can also go to our website at goodnursebetters.com. You can become a patron for $3 a month. You have We have a little extra stuff for you in there. Um, little video clips. Q's been working on some video clips for me and um, we're putting some other stuff on there. We also have a store with some merchandise. And you can follow us on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or Twitter at and Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I also, yes, and I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, right, Q? Right. <laughs> be a good nurse. Um, Please, be a good nurse and a doctor and a good respiratory therapist and a good physical therapist. And a good, <laughs> just be a good person for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs>